Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like bragging, trees, and sadness. Oh, I'd like to do the hi- well. I'd like to do the history of all of those, actually. I've, I, I'm I'm speechless. Trees in particular, but also sadness. Yeah, but bragging, I think, would be trees. excellent. Trees, trees would be brilliant. Mm, mm, tr- to do. Trees, I like the sound of. Alistair Campbell has a tree of the day on Twitter, which I always follow. Um, or we could do arms, palms and psalms, qualms, balms and calms. The history of calm or the history of calming. It's all about the history of tranquility and well-being. Soothing. That's soothing. Lovely. Oh, I think we should do... Oh, yes, let's do the history of soothing. But for mm. the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed and very patiently how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of houses is in fact all about those Cambridge Regis professors J.B. Bury and G.R. Elton on the building blocks of history? Of course it is. It's all about the houses of history. It's also all about the discovery of secret rooms in Devon, priest holes, hiding places and Catholicism in Elizabethan England. It's about domestic architecture and family life via Frank Lloyd Wright. It's also all about the Great Fire of London of 1666. It's about seating arrangements and rules in the House of Lords. And it's about cleanliness and the rise of domesticity. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of dogs, something that is very much on my mind at the moment, because we have now a six-month-old puppy. Uh, the history of it, though, is in fact all about Tudor gifts and Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII and sporting pastimes, and Mary, Queen of Scots, lapdog. It's also all about the 1796 dog tax and the attempt to contain dogs in 1738 in Edinburgh in the face of a rabies outbreak. It's also all about the history of guide dogs via Herculaneum and Charles Dickens, personal histories, memories of beloved childhood pets, monstrous dogs and Titian and Rembrandt. Goodness me. <laughs> woof, woof. <laughs> Very good. Um, let me introduce my fellow presenter. Uh, if history were a doctor, this man would be the most patient man in that waiting room. He would be whiling away the days and minutes and hours until he could be diagnosed with a bad case of the Inquisitions. Yes, that is the case of having that curse of being an inquisitive person, having an inquisitive nature. And that patience in that waiting room would, of course, make him the most patient patient of them all. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He's James Daywell. Hello, James. Hello, and delighted to be here as ever. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a waiting-related historian, he'd be patience personified. So careful and meticulous are his archival endeavours. So time-consuming and exacting is his extracting of the truth. Brilliance and genius is well worth waiting for. So sit still, relax, wait a while, and for the love of history, man, don't hurry! Anything. Yes, sirree, Bob. <laughs> Great history unfurls, not in a rush or in a canter, but in a gentle, sedate pace. And frankly, ain't no Russian the pushing forward of the advancement <laughs> of knowledge. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. That was atrocious. Ain't no Russian the pushing forward yeah, it, the advancement of knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I do apologise. That was aw- no. awful. 
So waiting sound. I loved it. Waiting. History of waiting. Mm. It feels quite um, appropriate. I can't remember why we chose we to do cho- this. We chose this because my daughter had an accident and we had to wait in A&E uh, for hours. And so I started ah, thinking about... Yeah. I mean, it was you who suggested we should do the history of waiting. And mm. I think wait, waiting is has an absolutely fascinating history. And there are so many big, big, big projects looking at the cultural history of of waiting, the impact of industrialization, labor conditions, health and well-being. There are all sorts of, you know, there is, there's waiting and power. So you think about the Bourdieu's, you know, understanding, um, making people wait, delaying without destroying hope is all part of the domination of people. Keeping people waiting is an exercise of power, manipulating people. So it's about subordination. Um, think about the commodification of time. E.P. Thompson, wasted time. So there are two big projects. Um, there's one big project called Waiting in Late Times, a cultural history at the University of Exeter and the University of Cambridge has a an early modern history project on the state of waiting, which is in fact linked to um, asylum seekers. So it's linked to migration, oh, migrants and asylum seekers and people being, you know, moving around the world, needing to come to places and the, the idea of stuckedness, so being stuck in places. Hmm. Um, so there's a whole whole really interesting sort of world of the history of waiting out there i'm going to talk about none of that um <laughs> i'm talking about the court of henry the eighth and i'm talking about post-world war ii queuing that's what i'm going to be talking about waiting in queues that sounds brilliant looking forward to that um i was I had a brief look at the uh, university of exeter and birkbeck i birkbeck i think the um, project on waiting waiting times it's all to do with healthcare and i thought that was fascinating they someone has identified how key waiting is as an experience of modern healthcare um, so you've got the time to access the services. It can be days, weeks, it can be months, even years that you're actually waiting for a diagnosis. Um, then there's a time it takes for treatment. Then there's an enormous amount of time for recovery. You've got relapse. There's uh, time and waiting involved in remission and time and waiting involved in dying as well. And they're looking at this project now. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It helps us think about what waiting means to us and how we react to the challenge of waiting um, which I thought was was something that really struck home with me not in a medical sense but um, certainly in a traveling sense I spend a lot of my time traveling and I'd just come back from Australia where I was I was basically waiting to get home uh, and it was I think 39 or 40 hours of traveling between leaving my hotel and actually arriving back home. Um, this was a couple of weeks ago. And so I really, um, I kind of really appreciated some of the discoveries they've made. And it opens up so many doors into the experience, the lived experience of waiting in the past. I mean, essentially, it's a it's a state of mind, isn't it? And it, it's, it's how you cope with it. And the way you cope with it depends entirely on your upbringing, it depends entirely on your education. It depends entirely on your, your current and contemporary interests. So 
by looking at waiting, it allows us to open up a huge number of doors into the past. And it makes us, I think, really understand and appreciate the humanity of the people we are looking at in the past. Um, there's one wonderful uh, little quote here from the Exeter Project. I took the opportunity to stop and I enjoyed the view and at the same time was considering my situation. During this contemplation, I made a number of decisions. The major one was that I didn't want this to be the last time I would watch the changing of the seasons. Uh, another one here. I tend to write almost every day that I'm on dialysis because that is dead time. If I don't use that time, I'm on dialysis for three and a quarter hours when I've got absolutely free time, which can be a curse if you've got no imagination. Uh, and certainly I know that I'd fill my time uh, writing. and I think a lot of people would fill their time uh, doing different things. And, um, you know, I, I just I just thought it was a fascinating project. And I'm really looking forward into into what they can come up with, James. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting because waiting and the NHS was how we got into this topic. And yep. in a kind of post-Thatcher world, a sort of neoliberal world where we are measuring everything waiting times for hospitals becomes a metric that you can measure and you can go up and mm. down and it is a way not only is it something that is experienced by patients and that patients grumble but it's also a way of measuring a, a supposed efficiency and reforms within the nhs and it's about reducing waiting times waiting lists how long you are going to be sitting in a and e how long you are there to wait for a particular kind of operation and as medicine advances as people live longer as you cope and deal with chronic diseases and illness and this links us back to frailty so which we talked about in our last podcast our previous podcast so resources become stretched and so your waiting becomes more and more common and this actually relates to something that i was going to talk about which is the history of queuing um you think about in our own in in our recent past one of the most iconic examples of queuing was people queuing to wait to pay their respects to queen elizabeth ii uh, who died last year and people queued up to walk past the coffin uh, famously david beckham uh, stood you know several hours uh, in the in the queue uh, with a rather fetching uh, Baker Boy uh, cap on. Um, uh, but um, Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby uh, jumped the queue and got into all sorts of trouble. The hosts of this morning uh, were almost fired for this because it was seen as something deeply disrespectful <laughs> and so un-British. And yeah. we are known, the British, as a nation of cures, or so you would think. I was reading uh, la late last night for this podcast a lovely article, uh, one of the most interesting articles I've read in many a year. And I read all sorts of things for Histories of the Unexpected. It takes me all over the place. Um, this is an article called Queuing Up in Post-War Britain by a wonderful uh, modern historian called Joe Moran, who's at Liverpool John Moores University. He's also written a book, Queuing for Beginners, the story of daily life from breakfast to bedtime, uh, 
published by Profile Books in 2007. But the article is quite easy to get hold of. It's much shorter. Uh, It's in 20th century British history. And it charts a really interesting history of queuing from uh, the end of World War II through the 1950s and 60s. And effectively what you have is during World War II, rationing meant that people had to queue up for things. They had to queue up at their local shops. um, And it's all to do with the nature of shops at the time and shopkeepers uh, and privation. But post-World War II, um, queuing basically becomes a a sort of a political issue because it's associated particularly by somebody like Churchill with meddling socialists and it becomes linked with uh, national decline so people actually having to queue up is seen as something that is the country is sort of going to the dogs and a particular venom is is (laughs) spat out at banks and post offices which are seen as a sort of symptom of British decline and it and there again it's associated rather like with the NHS it's associated with poor management poorly motivated employees badly trained people Uh, by the 70s and 80s you've got the dole queue becoming something that becomes incredibly politicized and then what you've got is a really interesting period under Thatcher uh, where the queue is transformed And so people aren't waiting for so long. And you've got the emergence of queue management theories. So the way in which algorithms are used to predict busy times. And there are various sort of technologies introduced in order to hurry along queues. Um, So it's an absolutely fascinating uh, article. And it starts uh, at the end of the Second World War looking at a number of writers who address the English character. And the the British were seen as amazing cures. So George Orwell, in his 1944 uh, essay, The English People, um, depicts this sort of imaginary foreign observer who was struck by the orderly behaviour of English crowds, the lack of pushing and quarrelling, the willingness to form queues. And uh, another uh, writer, a Hungarian émigré uh, called George Mikes, Uh, claimed in a book called How to Be an Alien in 1946 that, and I quote, an Englishman, even if he is alone, forms an orderly queue of one. And so it goes on. There's a a historian, uh, Ernest Baker, uh, who is writing um, in 1947, uh, who comments on the English urban crowd for its, and I quote, good sense, a species of self-discipline and a tactic of fitting in neatly on a little space cues will form and will show some sense of discipline and tactics there will be some bad manners and a little thrusting but the institution for the queue is of that order will be made to work so it's basically seen as something that is self-regulating but it's also something that from the world war ii onwards was criticized Um, was criticised by people standing in queues and many of those people who were standing in queues post-World War II tended to be housewives who tended to do most of the queuing. Um, They were the people who were out there because they were queuing for for goods Um, and there are all sorts of issues around that. Um, 
you know, people were concerned about morale, so waiting in line, weakening morale. But when they when they actually send individuals, so when wartime home intelligence sends people to go and stand in the queues to see what people are complaining about, it is basically they're complaining about uh, the shopkeeper um, forcing them to do this and also others who were standing in the line. Um, from a political point of view, it's seen, it's often associated with bureaucracy, red tape and government inefficiency. Uh, and somebody like um, Winston Churchill, the Conservative leader, who took uh, the country uh, through the war, is then voted down. And he associates queuing with socialism. Socialism means queuing. Um, and he he coins the term uh, Qtopia to describe Britain under socialist rule. Uh, and in one of his speeches... But why should they be at the head of the queue? Why should queues become a permanent, continuous feature of our life? The socialist dream is no longer utopia, but qtopia. Our earnest hope is that it may be granted to us to proclaim not the continuance, but the doom of the queues and restore the normal relations between shopkeepers and the public. And there are all sorts of things that, you know, that sort of impact on the queue they are seen as a a symptom of national decline so these people sort of queuing up there is a, there's a, a an advertising campaign um that shows people you know queuing up uh, queuing for bread and potatoes in peacetime um which actually was something was sort of set up by um the conservative party um as as propaganda against the the socialists but also it's something that, I, as I was saying before, it is something that is associated with inefficiencies in post offices, inefficiencies in banks, and that's something that we see attacked. Um, but there are various sort of tra various um, changes that are brought about over the 60s, 70s and 80s that really transform the way in which people queue. So, for example, in shops, we see a change towards supermarkets. I can see this in my own lifetime. Um, and I grew up in the in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, well, I grew up. I, I was born in the in the early 70s. And I remember living in a small seaside town where most of the shopping that we did was in local local shops, the local greengrocer, local bakers, the local butchers and 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 there was a supermarket but it was a very old-fashioned supermarket and most people shopped in the small shops but over that period you suddenly see the emergence of supermarkets along uh, american lines able to get things people through much more quickly much less having to sort of queue up and wait um, the introduction of barcodes you think about some of the transformations that have happened in in banks and in post offices and some of the technologies that have been brought in imagine how the you've got the sort of the multiple counters now you've got people coming in and picking tickets and then being sort of processed through that kind of technology is all to speed up um queuing uh, to stop the waiting time that people would have had you think about the way in which banks have been transformed the way in which banks have been transformed that now the atm machine or phone banking you know the decline of actually people standing up in front of a a, a bank teller and taking out your money uh, so all of this sort of sees to 
huge changes that have been brought about and there's even there's even a material history of this so there are furniture firms that have specialized in producing furniture and contraptions that enable people to queue enable people to wait or there are benches that are put down in places for people to sit down on um, there are technologies that allow people to take tickets all of those kinds of things so there we are sam there's a sort of canter through um the sort of second half of the 20th century and the queue and of course who could forget mrs thatcher and that whole sort of <laughs> you know the whole way in which you know they were bringing around efficiencies in you know in public services speeding things up measuring things Oh, goodness me, it's exhausting. Uh, but you should definitely <laughs> check out uh, Joe Moran's uh, article and his book on queuing mm. in post-war Britain. Yeah. There's loads of loads of stuff there that I hadn't thought about before, um, ways to look at it. I like the, um, the material culture of queuing. Yes. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yes. And uh, whether, whether you make people comfortable or you don't. Ah. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, I... Uh, got some work coming up with the science museum because they've got an amazing collection of ship models and i've been browsing through their catalogue and uh, they are particularly famous for their dioramas um and uh, i <laughs> really enjoyed some of the dioramas lots of them are medical related um so this is just a handful of them to give you a, a sense of the quality and the variety of them so diorama you know it's um if you don't know it's a it's a, like a little um uh, a little model um, showing a kind of a moment in time, often with little figures there doing something. So we have here a diorama showing the anatomy theatre at Padua in 1594. Uh, there's a diorama showing a chemical laboratory in the early 1700s. A diorama showing naval surgery in the 1800s. A diorama showing trepanation. So this is uh, drilling a hole in someone's skull. In Neolithic times, brilliant, that was made in 1942, uh, middle of the Second World War. A diorama showing Lavoisier carrying out an experiment in Paris in 1789. And finally, a diorama showing Amboise Paré treating the wounded in England. Um, and uh, now this has basically raised a huge number of questions that we could explore through the history of waiting, primarily... Um, because they have got a series of mini kind of figures, not a diorama in itself. Some of them are, I suppose, two or three figures, but they are little miniature figures that were being made, and they have been made uh, in China between 1880 and 1920, and they have been made uh, to depict Chinese medicine and... Chinese punishments so it's all to do with uh, it's quite interesting it's quite Chinese actually that the two are put together it's to do with the treatment for good and bad of the human body uh, and I'm going to go on later and talk about some of these other topics which were raised by that list of dioramas uh, primarily the idea of triage so you've got the diorama of showing naval surgery in the 1800s and that of, um, of uh, Ambroise Paré treating the wounded in England. Both of those raise the question of triage and waiting for surgery. But these Chinese ones, particularly the Chinese ones relating to punishment, do raise quite an interesting question about waiting for death and um, because of torture. It's about 
Chinese techniques to punish and torture and prolong death for as long as possible. And they're pretty grisly and they're pretty unpleasant, but they are nonetheless very striking. One of them um, shows a sufferer uh, wearing something called a Kang, C-A-N-G-U-E. Um, it is quite an unpleasant thing. It's It's a large board or two pieces of board each with a semicircle in it which are secured over the shoulder so your head pokes through it and you're basically wearing an enormous piece of wood and it it it, it goes out maybe two feet in front and two feet around or to each side now it's it's a punishment because of two things well three things firstly is it's incredibly heavy and um, the weight of the Kang depend on the seriousness of your crime. But the, the heaviest ones could be up to about 15 kilograms. So that's four gallons of water. And this is, as I said, secured around the neck, neck by locks and clasps. So you can't take it off. Now, the key thing about it is you can't feed yourself. Uh, and so if other people don't feed you, then over time you, you, you weaken and you eventually starve to death. So uh, very unpleasant indeed. Um, it's a bit like a yoke, I suppose, because you have to kind of carry something as well, even though it is attached around your neck. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is a little diorama of um, a victim. A chap is tied to a post, and then there are two... Uh, soldiers either side of him one of whom has a, a very sharp knife and he is um, slicing some skin off the top of this man's head is the only way to describe it and it's depicting something called death by Ling Chi um, we in the west know this as death by a thousand cuts and it's quite interesting the way that the western world has to a certain extent, misunderstood and misinterpreted what was going on here. It does reveal um, uh, opinions of barbarity in Asia in the 19th century. Nonetheless, we do also know that this did this was a real way of killing people. It has its own history. It was designed to create as long and as lingering a death as possible, but also an uh, important public humiliation aspect of it, as well as punishment after death. And um, all of those aspects, so a lingering death, public humiliation and punishment after death, uh, have their own parallels in British executions, such as being hanged, drawn and quartered. Uh, in terms of the Chinese belief of the importance of the body and the importance of the way that you're treated after death, this is all to do with Confucius, Conf Confucian principles of understanding and appreciating the human's body. Um, altering or cutting your body is it's not, it's not allowed. Um, and so... Uh, it essentially means that if you are cut into pieces, then you, you do not die whole. You cannot live and enjoy a spiritual life after death. Um, and uh, that's also very similar to British and other European understandings of the importance of fire in execution, particularly in terms of the burning of witches and the burning of heretics, um, because you're denying them um, uh, life after death in the way that the victim would have liked it. Um, 
this uh, uh, death by Ling Chi has its own uh, lengthy history. Uh, one of the most shocking ones I found was some uh, poor child was executed uh, aged 14 and he was involved in um, something called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. It's all to do with the overthrow of the Qing dynasty in the mid-19th century. So uh, pretty unpleasant stuff, James, but um, yeah, maybe think about waiting to die, deliberately making people wait to die. Ooh, would you say you're a patient person, Sam? I am, without doubt, one of the most impatient people on the planet, James. What I think, about you? I, th- I'm, I join you in that. I'm very, I'm very <laughs> impatient. However, I have enjoyed recently having to wait for Happy Valley, um, because uh, we we live in a we live in a sort of an instant world. My my daughters grow up just thinking that you can. Pre- well, you can just press a button and a whole series sort of unfolds before your very eyes. Sort of the history of the box set, the consumption of the box set, and you can just sort of motor through something in about two evenings. And I have actually been enjoying waiting for Sunday evening at nine o'clock to see Happy Valley. And the finale yesterday was was outstanding. Um, Sarah Lancashire uh, deserves a damehood. Uh, she is an extraordinary actress. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say that. Uh, and, and then, as, as a no segue at all, into... into um, well, no, w- waiting in the media is important. I mean, yes. the, the, the history of how we consume media has, without any doubt, changed over time. It's particularly changed over the last five years. So if you think about what was going on when we were growing yeah. up, when you had four TV channels or a certain amount of radio channels, three. Yeah. And um, when you're listening to soaps or, or whether it's the Archers or, you know, EastEnders, whatever it might be, you know, part of the kind of joy of it, the excitement was, is you'd wait for it to come and you'd all set your diaries to it because at 7pm on a Tuesday yeah. night, that's exactly what you'd be doing. And so it's quite rare to have to do that yeah. now. Um, and I think it's particularly powerful when you do. Yeah, and and actually, it's it's one of the most popular things on TV, and we've got almost that kind of national <laughs> national experience of something, uh, where whereas most of our media consumption nowadays is so personalised and fractured that it's very difficult to sort of have a a sort of uh, something that really galvanises the nation together in their sort of watching habits. But what I really wanted to talk about, and that is fascinating, and we should come back and explore the history of the media. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was petitioning in the court of Henry VIII, because yeah. this is basically... So when, when we think about 16th century England, um, this is the period of the Tudors. So you've got Henry VIII um, in the the early 16th century, a sort of vainglorious uh, king, famously uh, six wives. Um, but also the interesting thing to note about the way in which politics worked is that it is a personal monarchy. So as I've said in the past, everything requires the king's agreement or requires the agreement of his leading ministers. So politics is very much conducted in an interpersonal way. If you if you have something that you want done, so you have a suit, in other words, suit as in S-U-I-T, in other words, you have a suit that you want you want done you've got something that you you want to be awarded whether it be you know a piece of land you know title coming to you um whether you want a a knighthood whether you want a sort of pension or an annuity you would often go to 
somebody like Thomas Cromwell or the king in, in sort of really important circumstances and have them sign a piece of paper that allowed you you know, to have this. What it means is that it is an incredibly time-consuming and cumbersome experience that involved a lot of waiting. So you would often have to go up to court, you would have to find yourself rooms and accommodation to stay there we're often talking about the aristocracy here so you'd come along with your people they would need to be housed you'd then need to sort of wait and have a uh, meeting with Cromwell or the king an audience which again is all about waiting and is about status and is about access and is about power and then you needed to explain to them what you wanted done, and then they needed to agree or not. And there is one example that I want to talk about in particular. Um, in November 1538, which is one of my favourite um one of my favourite sort of individuals uh, from the past, a woman called Honor Lady Lyle, who I've spoken about before. She is the wife of Viscount Lord Lyle, who is cousin to Henry VIII. He is the Lord Deputy of Calais when the English still have that little sort of toehold in in France. Uh, he controls the, the garrison and she is over there. We have a really wonderful letter collection that survives between the two of them. And there's this lovely little exchange of letters between Lady Lyle and Lord Lyle. He's in his 70s. She's slightly younger. Uh, they write to each other in a very romantic way. Um, her letters in particular to him are, are extraordinary. And in this sort of little clutch of letters, she explains her journey from Calais on ship over to London, trying to find accommodation at court, trying to get hold of Thomas Cromwell, who, of course, is an incredibly busy man, but she's trying to get time to speak to him about uh, some land that they want the title of. And this series of letters are full of waiting. So there is, a for a start, there's waiting for the ship to come. There's waiting for the the journey that she arrives in London and she's waiting for servants to come along and see her and to take letters across um, and I'll just read you a little extract of one of the letters here mine own sweetheart so these are very sort of romantic letters uh, to Lord Lyle this is Lady Lyle writing to Lord Lyle on the 7th of November 1538 mine own sweetheart this shall be to advertise you that I have had a good and fairly passage but it was somewhat slow and long ere I landed for this night at ten of the clock I arrived. I thank God I was but once sick in all the way, and after that I was merry and well, and should have been much merrier if I'd been coming towards you, or if you had been with me. Your absence and my departure maketh heavy. Blah, 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 blah. And so she goes on. Um, and this letter I began yesternight at supper time, intending to have sent it to you by John Neal, and at supper time, because it was in the night late, they looked not for me, so that there was no provision here ready for me. But while the supper was in dressing, I told to John Neal, Marcus... Uh, Sir John Smith and Lamb, whom I had at supper time, merry tales, and then John Neal promised me to come again in the morning for a token and a letter to your lordship. But contrary to his promise, he went away at three of the clock in the morning, giving me no warning thereof, which I assure you have not made me a little sorry, 
for that I fear I should conceive you should conceive any unkindness or displeasure towards me. So it's full of these sort of these delays, this this waiting, her inability to communicate. And then she eventually gets this letter over to him. And then there is a real sort of difficulty of trying to get hold of Cromwell. She's obviously at court. She's well acquainted with the king. She describes in the next letter that we've got of 15th of November, 1538, that she has been entertained by the king, that he has. And she writes here, um, she writes here of how the king's highness entertained me, uh, yet forgot I I to write to you that his grace at the banquet wished you were here and I answered his highness that you would with all your heart have been there and that notwithstanding your absence it shall not be a little comfort to you to hear that his grace had you in his remembrance so she's she's very sort of well connected right at the top of the Tudor court she then has this real difficulty of getting hold of Cromwell and she goes on, And this day I thought to have spoken with my lord Privy Seal, but his lordship hath deferred it till tomorrow, and sent me word by Hussey, this is John Hussey, who is their man of business in London, in other words, a sort of a servant, um, that I should be with him tomorrow by six of the clock, which I will not fail, and then to break unto him, among other matters, for the parks and lands of Devonshire, whereof I have received your letters this day by Berkham and with mine own servant, which I will send incontinent after I have spoken with my Lord Privy Seal. And then we see uh, there's another letter um, the next day. Mine own good Lord, with my whole heart and mind, I commend me unto you, not a little desirous to hear from you, but wholly and entirely to be with you. And here we are. And this shall be signifying you that I was this morning with my Lord Privy Seal, to whom I declare how good and gracious the King's Majesty was unto me, and that his pleasure was that I should resort unto his Lordship for the expedition of mine affairs, desiring him to be good unto you for your renewity, which he said might be no more than two hundred pounds yearly, to whom I answered that it lay in him to obtain the four hundred pounds, and that was his first motion and promise, whereunto he answered that he thought you would not charge him with his promise. Finally, he said that he would do the best therein for you and all others that lay in his power. So we've got this sort of incredibly drawn-out interpersonal process of transacting business the difficulty of travel these protracted journeys that take time and in fact we looked at the history of boredom uh, a while ago and we read that wonderful uh, oxford university press monograph about the history of boredom um, in the sort of imperial world and time on ships and how do you how when you are waiting to get somewhere how do you how do you spend your time uh, but also the time waiting to meet for somebody to actually transact business with them so there we are waiting at henry the eighth's court sam we could have done yeah, maids in waiting stuff, couldn't we maids of honor ladies yeah. in waiting oh, oh goodness me oh yeah waiting as in looking after people yes. or having having yes. a, having a, a waiter mm -hmm. waiting on you yeah mm, fascinating stuff um, and triage i never really got to talk about it but the development of triage in the in the army is fascinating all to do with napoleon and um it didn't have the 
um, kind of civilian human side to it that we all understand now, where you're trying to save the people who are most likely to survive. It was first invented uh, as a means of trying to save the people who are most likely going to be able to fight. Um, so it's all to do with your military capability rather than uh, just you being a human and wanting to survive. And primarily it was reserved for officers. Um, interesting stuff and um, a kind of slightly skewed version from uh, what we, we suspect uh, from today's use of civilian triage uh, but that's it for now though guys uh, the history of waiting james i thought that was interesting and so much more we could have done uh, do follow me on social media please i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history the history of the sea please listen to the mariner's mirror podcast and don't wait to follow me on twitter at james daybell or the podcast at unexpected pod also come along and make friends with us on instagram and facebook check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com for our back catalogue and signed books and if you'd like to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past head over to patreon.com and our page there historiesoftheunexpected.com uh, meanwhile have uh, have a good day wherever you are we'll be back soon guys with the history of uh, trees I think we're doing excellent we trees would be lovely <laughs> alright guys bye 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 guys